Hello again, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Today, we continue our discussion on the unique needs of women in treatment and recovery, and this, the second of our three episodes, focuses on women, trauma, and substance use disorders. Although substance use disorders are generally more common among men than women, those women who do have SUDs commonly deviate more from the norms of society compared to men. Women with SUDs tend to live in environments characterized by high risk of violence and other forms of abuse and tend to be survivors of childhood trauma. SAMHSA research estimates that up to 80% of women who seek treatment have been victims of sexual or physical violence with another 72% reporting ongoing emotional abuse. Some German research in 2019 has also shown that the more severe the traumatic effects, the earlier the first episode, as well as the more rapid escalation of the substance use. Tanisha Grant, Director of Women's Services at Community Renewal Team in Hartford and member of the CCB Board of Directors joins us once again. Welcome to the podcast again, Tanisha. Good morning, how are you? Oh, good. Thank you very much. Let me start out with something about the statistics. Um, the st- statistics related to trauma in women seeking SUD services, obviously those are staggering. Um, are you seeing those numbers reflected in the bin- in the individuals that you serve at Community Renewal Team? Yes, un- unfortunately, um, we are. I want to say about 95% of the women that we serve in, the, in our behavioral health department has some history of trauma. That's even higher than what this, the overall statistics show. Um, do you think that a lot of that can be kind of chalked up to um, uh, the rates of poverty in a city like Hartford, um, uh, the urban environment, and you know, kind of just the overall urban issues that go with being in uh, being in a city as opposed to the grand scope of, of all over the country where you're taking other things into consideration. That's that's absolutely correct. So our office is located right in the in the, in the smack dab in the middle of um, the city of Hartford. Um, and as you know, that's the predom- predominantly, I don't want to say, because I don't want folks in Hartford to think I'm talking bad about them, but the it's, it's a poverty-stricken um, area. There's high crime in the city of Hartford. So these women, um, have, if they're born and raised in Hartford, have experienced and witnessed different things that are going on in their communities. They may also experience different things at home, growing up as a, as a child. So this all, being in an urban area, does have a significant impact, which is pretty much most of our, our folks that we see are from the Hartford area. And the reality of Hartford, and, and this is you know factual, so it's not really trying to take a knock at the city, but it's Hartford has consistently been in the top or bottom ten, however you look at it, in terms of most impoverished cities in uh, in the nation. The mm-hmm. three Connecticut cities fall into that. New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport all Bridgeport. fall into that. So we certainly see a lot of that here in in Connecticut, and I would assume that in our other cities they're seeing the same numbers. Um, uh, as you see in terms of 
percentages of folks with with uh, that kind of history. Mm-hmm. Like even um, just overall, like um, CRT, we sixty percent of um, the the folks that we serve are women, and with that being said, just just CRT in general, not just only in our behavioral health department, but but overall, and they all most of them are single um, single moms raising their children and fall below the, the poverty level. So it's and, that and side just, and it's, it's unfortunate that we, that it's like that though. And, and just on a larger scale, I know I mentioned this last week, uh, looking at the history of CRT there, CRT is one of the original anti-poverty agencies in, in the nation. Um, and was, uh, it, it, it was, created before uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, but it was named by him as one of those community agencies uh, to receive funds under that, uh, you know, his legislation. So CRT has been serving the community for a long, long time. In the introduction, I mentioned physical and sexual violence, as well as the emotional abuse as traumatic events. We don't do justice to the scope of the problem of trauma without identifying other traumatic events and patterns. There's more to it than just physical, sexual violence and emotional abuse. What are some of the other things that create trauma for the individuals that you serve? So typically what you what you can see in folks when you're doing um, when you're doing trauma screening, when you're like a person coming new into your program. And you ask them about a series of events that may have occurred when they were a child or things that they have experienced. And so some of the things that you look for um, that can cause cause stress on people is dysfunction in your family. Right. So you can have um, be be come from a single parent home or you could have been in a situation where you um, witnessed domestic violence in the home. You may have had people that are in your family that may have had some type of incarceration, um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, all of those things that are that can that can be stressful. And then you also have the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the emotional abuse that a person um, could have experienced as a child, and then neglect as well. So there's a that. All of that stuff together, coupled with no supports at home or in the community, builds up on a person. Mm-hmm. And if that stress isn't isn't taken care of, then it it, it essentially leads to other health issues. Um, so whether it could be mental health um, problems, it could be some physical some physical problems, but as a result of the stress. So typically what you will see in an individual that experienced trauma that wasn't um, treated and was going on for a long amount of time, um, they may experience anxiety and depression. And the, the likelihood of them being victimized as adults, which is what we see um, with some of our, with, with our women, um, is there's a high chance of them being, um, being victimized as adults. And what we see when we talk about, um, and kind of one of the scales that, that's used commonly is the ACEs scale, adverse mm-hmm. uh, childhood experiences. What we know is is what you just mentioned, that individuals who experience this trauma have chronic health problems often, mental health issues, substance use issues. 
But another thing that it does is it also impacts their ability to get a good education. Mm-hmm. And it, it affects their job opportunities, which helps repeat a cycle of poverty. So right. these, these traumatic experiences have wide ranging effects on individuals that, that we often you know, uh, don't take into consideration. Given the statistics that we have, it would seem prudent to assume that a woman who's seeking services has had a history of trauma. So how would you go about efforts to make this individual feel, feel comfortable when they come into your surroundings and go through the process of, of receiving care from, from your programs? Well, first of all, I want to say that it takes some self-awareness on the part of the agency itself and whatever what policy and procedures we have and practices to make sure that we aren't um, re-traumatizing the individual, right? And that we understand as professionals that are in that, that are working in that environment, that we also may have experienced some of our own um, trauma and what can we do as an organization to not re-traumatize our, our staff as well. Even those that are, that work directly with the clients providing them clinical services or the staff that are, um, that are not, that are non-clinical and working at the, like the front desk or something like that. Um, what we did was, and down in the Women's Empowerment Center, we have created a, a facility that's really safe for the women when they come. They are able to still keep an eye on their children when they're coming for services. Um, the furniture that we that we purchased, we made sure that it was comfortable. Um, how we placed it so that you know they can be in eyesight of different different things that's going on um, in the in the area, so that we could build a sense of safety and comfort for them. Um, but that's that's pretty much it. And so, like like when an individual, when a female comes to our program, there's a waiting area upstairs in our where the clinic is. Mm-hmm. If there's um, folks up there in the clinic, um, like if there's a lot of guys up there, what the women can do is come hang out in the women's empowerment center until it's their turn to be called, and their clinician will come downstairs. Um, grab them and then bring them back up to the clinic so that they have a, a, a waiting environment that is not noisy or loud or anything like that. It's just a real, real calm space where they can um, collect their thoughts before they come to their appointment. In a few minutes, we'll talk more about some of the larger organizational factors, but I, I'm mm-hmm. listening to what you're saying. And what's coming to me is, is reinforcement of, of, in any situation, it's the little things that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, when somebody is not sitting on institutional furniture, right? Sitting on comfortable furniture instead of the this end up <laughs> furniture <laughs> that is, has been all over our programs forever. Right. All um, right, and, and the other other thing too is just just assuming that folks with that that are coming in for treatment that they that they may have already has some type of um, trauma in their lives. And if you can, if you look at it through that lens, then the services that you provide to them should be, should be adequate. Yeah. And I think that that's important that, you know, given the numbers, it's, you almost have to assume that someone has experienced that and be prepared for it Mm -hmm. um, ahead of time. 
yeah. by your environment and, and how you set up and the way your processes are. You have to take that into consideration before it happens. Um, because once you don't want someone to not want to come back in the door once right. they come once. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with all of this uh, going on and a real focus on trauma, one of the positive things that we've been seeing is really an increase, increased awareness of the impacts of trauma. And we're seeing more educational opportunities for professionals and, and, and really a, a push for trauma-informed practice is really on the rise. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it got started, it got a jump start back in 2014 when SAMHSA public, uh, published you know, a concept of trauma and guidance for a trauma-informed approach. Um, and I think that you know, six years ago is really when we started to see a push. There were some programs doing it already. Um, but can you talk about some of the hallmarks of trauma-informed care? So I, I want to say that, like and I, some of like my previous answer, um, just making sure that the safe the space is um, is safe for the person when they're when they're coming in to come and see you. Um, the environment is is a is 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 it's pretty much safety is is number number one. Um, the other thing I would say would be um, a hallmark with um, regards to trauma-informed care is the person being able to trust you. So you're going to be able to provide services that are, um, when you sit down with them, you're going to say, this is what you're going to be, this is the care that you're going to receive. Um, this is um, what you can expect from these services. Also, creating a space where the individual, where the female is feeling empowered as well. So having to have some kind of say in, in her treatment. Um, also being able just to be a part of, um, being a part of building um, organizational planning as well. That that's another, that's another key thing. And making sure that your staff um, are trained appropriately to deal with, um, to work with individuals that are survivors of trauma. And when you hire folks, making sure that they are, um, that they have experience working with trauma or you have it built into your policy and procedures where there's going to be ongoing training for this as, um, as you know, this, the, it changes often. So. And, and that's an important aspect when you talk about uh, the people and the staffing um, and, and the ability to to really meet your the folks you serve where they're at and understand their individual situation, um, because I don't care how great somebody's services are, if the individuals aren't comfortable going there to receive services, um, it's not going to make a difference uh, because mm -hmm. they're not going to come. And then, and especially the the trust factor too. So if you say you're going to do something, then do it. So that so that the expectation is there because they've they've already been let down so many times. And so for them to um, lower their guard to be able to receive care and treatment, they have to be able to trust that this is what that you're going to do, what you say you're going to do. And this is what should be the likely outcome if you do X, Y and Z. And uh, I find that incredibly important. Uh, hold on one second. There she goes. I didn't warn everybody about the dog today. So one of the things that to me that's incredibly important because people that know me and have, have 
maybe seen what I put on social media know how important that honesty and that that transparency is to me. When you make a commitment to do something, that you actually do it. So don't make promises you can't keep to uh, the, the the people that come in. Don't ask them to do things that they're not prepared to do. Right. Um, and and the staff training is a big issue for me as well um, because we know with the turnover in a lot of agencies and in our field that it's very difficult to keep staff uh, trained and updated. And oftentimes in some organizations, that may be the first thing to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, dollars for training, but they're very important. Uh, acronyms, alliterations, those are things that we often use in the field to help remember theories, principles, and interventions. Um, and certainly with trauma-informed care, it's no different. I remember when I was learning uh, the clinical aspects of, of DBT, there were a multiple number of, of acronyms to help people remember things. Uh, so when we look at it for our listeners, can you explain what they talk about in terms of the three E's and the four R's? Okay. So um, in terms, and acronyms are right, because what, <laughs> what one acronym may mean to one field is completely different for another field, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to try to get away, get away from them, but we, typically see that folks use acronyms to be able to help them to remember things. So in terms of the three E's um, with regards to trauma-informed care, um, realize that there's a precipitating event, so that's one E, Mm -hmm. right, that created an experience for this individual that was um, either physically or and emotional or emotionally stressful for them. And it had a negative um, effect on them as well. So the three E's, event, experience, and effect? Mm-hmm. All right, great. And what are the four R's? The four R's are, one, realizing the impact of um, trauma, Um that the individual has has experienced and being able to recognize the signs that the individual um, may have experienced um, some trauma, even if they didn't overtly say to you, um, X, Y, and Z happened to me. And then being able to res- respond to that by having um, trauma-informed pa- practices, policies, and procedures in your organization and also making sure that you don't re-traumatize. Um, so resist, re- resist re-traumatization of the individual that's, um, that's under your care and um, your staff as well. Absolutely. So realization, recognition, response, and not re-traumatize are, those, are the four R's. What's right. interesting about these and with many other things that we see within the world of of treatment and recovery. This may be specific to working with individuals uh, in a trauma-informed environment, but it's certainly, these are good practices for any environment to protect the, the, the clients that are served. You know, we see that it may be designed for one, but it's certainly effective uh, for others. It, it it totally is. Um, I think that trauma can be, can happen, whether it's, whether it's at home, 
right? Or whether it's out in your community, trauma can happen while you're at work. And so this, that, that can apply across, across different, um, different fields, um, different um, types of environments as well. When you're looking at the bigger picture, like if you wanted to do something like in in organizations, um, workplace violence, right? So Mm -hmm. all of these, this, these can also apply to those as well. Um, not just specifically to individuals that are in, in recovery. And that kind of leads into my next question is when, when we look at trauma-informed care, we recognize that it involves not just the interventions from individuals, you know, whether they're clinical or non-clinical, but it involves the agency culture and practice. You know, uh, what are some of the key organizational ingredients that really improve the environment? Uh, for individuals seeking services. And you just mentioned one, issues around workplace violence that can occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so how you deal with those, I think, would be uh, certainly something that could improve or or uh, have the opposite effect on the environment. Right. And, it, and the, the key thing with that is that you have to make sure, like, it has to come from the top down. Right. And you have to get buy in from or from all the stakeholders. So not just administration, from the folks that are that are on a hitting a boots on the ground on the ground running, um, participants in your program, being um, being part of planning um, or different advisory councils for your agency. Right. To help you to say, well, yeah, that sounds like a good policy to you, but for those of us that this is how that how that could impact us, um, or employees that are that are on hitting the boots, like the direct care service workers, right? This policy sounds good in theory, but in practice, it's not so good because of X, Y, and Z. So being able to have multiple perspectives on policy creation. Um, gets a greater buy-in from folks because it also it shows that you that you care and you you want to um, you want to listen and you want to create things that are that'll be um, a safe place for folks to work and for people to come and receive treatment from um, and and just enforcing any of that there's the a, like a staffing component where folks are trained regularly on on policy and procedures um, so that it is so that it isn't an afterthought like you said like how once with with turnover training sometimes get get lost in the shuffle um, and then the funding do you have funding to send your staff out to training what can you do to get get um, folks to come in-house and provide an in-service to um, to your staff um, all of those the the organizational pieces is very important and it has to start start at the top um, and include other people that are, that are involved in it so that, so that it actually works. Having written policies and procedures for programs and for agencies in the past, one thing that I learned, um, that I didn't know initially was, uh, writing a policy and creating it is one thing, but implementation is another thing, mm-hmm. uh, being able to actually do it. So I think what you said about having staff involvement and, and feedback on those is important before it's put into place. And, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, you know, there's some standard policies about things, but we know that policies are often written because somebody did something that they should. Right. 
you know, you shouldn't have to sign a form when you go to work saying that you won't gamble online on your work computer. It seems common sense. Right. You have to sign those things because somebody did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and policies across the board can't always, like things like that don't always help. Um, I was trying to do some, I was working at an organization and one of my individuals had had some issues with gambling and I was trying to do some research on it to get things for them and I couldn't access it. Mm-hmm. The computer, anything with that word in it was blocked because of online gambling issues. So I think that having access to information is important. Um, yeah. So when we look at things, we have to focus on implementation because what may seem like a good idea at the right. top may not be practical uh, at where at the front lines where people are doing the work. So involvement in that is important. Mm-hmm. Um, as we finish up, I'm going to give you a chance to advertise the Women's Empowerment Center and Women's Services at CRT. Tell me what you think the biggest impact of your services are. How does it help uh, those affected by trauma, uh, these women feel safe and feel comfortable? So like I had we, like I had said earlier, like how, the way how we set up the Women's Empowerment Center where they can come and get training on different types of things that they um, that they have interest in, being able to have a space where they can um, conduct support peer support groups um, on their own without having needing a staff to be there to to see it, feeling comfortable enough to bring their kids inside of um, of our center. We have some of our um, our members of the Women's Empowerment Center are also on our advisory um, committee as well, so they help us to continue to um, build the Women's Empowerment Center for um, the women that are in the in the greater Hartford area. Um, placement of, like I was saying earlier, like the placement of, um, of, our, of our furniture and, and strategically placed, right? Um, and then having them work with female staff, we, we typically, we don't have any, um, any male staff that are work, that are working in a um, women's empowerment center. And um, it's not because we're against um, we're against men or anything like that, but it's just, it, the women feel a lot safer. And even our, um, our trainings that we offer for, for the women are straight, are women only. And so I've gotten a little bit of pushback from some of the the men that are, um, that are in a clinic, well, why don't you provide these services for men? And, um, as well. And so I say to them, your voice is just as important as, as the women's voices are. And if you think that this is something that you guys would like, then you guys need to, to advocate for yourself so that you can get that, can get the type of, um, services that we offer down in the women's department center. Um, and so, pretty much they can, the women can come there. Um, we have computers set up with, um, for them. So if they want to do job search or, um, if they're looking for housing, like we have, um, space where they can sit and do those kinds of things that they're looking at, then doing, working on homework from school and they don't have, um, well now with COVID, no one's been down in the center, but we have it set up where folks can come do that. They can fax, they can copy, they can print, all of that there in an environment that's safe and they can, like I said, still 
see their children, um, hear their children and, and I um in earshot. So just being able to provide um a space where they can get their needs met and not have to worry about um being accosted or someone trying to hit on them. Um, those kinds of things. Which happens like crazy in treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, I, that you said that is really important to me is that they can take ownership. The women that come can meet uh, individually, you know, with, without a staff member so that there's a level of trust there that, that people are going to do the things they need to, um, which is maybe a very new experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Many. Um, they see women in control of things, um, women working in the program and having this impact. And just the idea of setting that role model to me is, is very, very uh, important, especially at, at the type of uh, things that you provide at the Women's Empowerment Center. You know, is, uh, is there a role for men in trauma-informed care? Absolutely. Right. But it, not in the environment right now that you have. And I think right. that makes perfect sense um, because you've got people right from their, their home environment that you want to protect and you want them to feel safe. And that may be the only safe place they have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't kind of want to rock the boat and say, let's introduce a male into the to the mix and see what happens because it can create problems. It, it can. Um, I remember when we when our program first had opened up and we had um, a business class. And so on the on the registration form, we didn't ask for sex or anything like that or gender um, because we just automatically assumed that folks would see Women's Empowerment Center and think that this is a, a class for for women. And a gentleman actually showed up and he registered and you couldn't tell by the name on the um on the registration form that it was a male. And the feedback once the, you know, at the end of you do a like a quick survey, um, they were really disappointed that um that there was a guy that was there in in the group. Yeah, and, it changes the whole dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that safe services um, for everybody are important. And I think it's it, it's certainly okay and the right thing to do to say this is a women's group, this is a right. women's program, especially given the numbers of trauma and, and mm-hmm. the fact that we mentioned earlier, the, uh, the things that they've experienced in their lives. Let them, let the women that come... Uh, be a group, be a community unto themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and and essentially that's what they've become. And they, it's just, it's beautiful to see it in action because like say someone may happen to come down into the center because they're, they, they ended up on the wrong floor. The women are just so welcoming to them. And so I may not have a chance to step away from my desk because I may be with someone else. But they'll jump right in and welcome them. Hey, you need to sign in right here. Um, you can have a seat right over here. Do you have an appointment with her? They're not staff, but they're they're helping me out, and it feels good. They feel good about doing those kinds of things because at one point in time, that they were in their shoes too, and saying, "Oh, you know how to use it. You need to you need to get on a computer. Here's a password to get on get into the computer." I mean. It's just beautiful seeing it um, in action. Really, this is, is beautiful seeing it. 
truly a community and, and uh, for I'm sure many of your participants to be able to be of, of service to somebody else mm-hmm. um, on their own terms uh, and somebody that's like them uh, right. is very important. Is uh, It's different than being a servant. You're being mm-hmm. of service to somebody and it's very empowering and, and um, helps build that self-esteem mm-hmm. and values uh, that they bring to the community. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to once again thank Tanisha Grant for joining us and express our gratitude to the community renewal team for allowing her to take the time to talk to us. Join us next time for the third and final episode in our three-part series on the unique needs of women in recovery when we discuss the added stigma of being a woman with a substance use disorder. Uh, The release date for that will be Tuesday, August 11th. And we here at the CCB appreciate everyone who is listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast provider. Until next time, have a great day, Janisha. You too.